Okay, welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight. Um, tonight's event is the theft of creative content, copyright and crisis. And this is a joint event organised by the LSE Department of Law in conjunction with PRS for Music. Um, we've managed to get together a really interesting panel. Hopefully you will enjoy what they're going to discuss tonight and you will all get a chance to take part. So there's one or two things I need to say before we start. Um, the first thing is that um, this event has a dedicated Twitter hashtag um, called LSE Copyright, and it's there on the screen. Um, so you can make comments, send questions. Um, please keep it polite and clean um, via that hashtag. Also, you can send questions to the account at LSE Law, and down the front here we have monitoring that account. We have Bradley Barlow, who will be our Twitter guru and god for the night. Um, also, we're very fortunate that at points during tonight that uh, Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, who's on the panel and from the Financial Times, has agreed to be our guest tweeter from there. And um, anything that Ludovic tweets will have the initials LHT, so that you will be able to recognise this as a Ludo tweet. Um, we're going to follow a structure which is that um, we will have opening comments from members of the panel. We'll have opening comments. I'll come to this um, in a second, but in order they will be from Robert, from Amelia, and then from Luke, and I'll introduce you to all of them in just a second. And then there will be a sort of Q&A session which um, Ludovic will chair with um, Egg White, the singer-songwriter, who is the empty chair on the end at the moment, but that we're desperately hoping will be here um, to join us very soon. He's been slightly delayed on his way here. He's just arrived. Excellent. He is no longer an empty chair. Thank you, Egg. Right. Um, so, to carry on, um, first of all, just to introduce myself, I'm Professor Andrew Murray. Um, I'm a professor in the law department here, and I'm chairing tonight's event, which means I get to listen to everyone and not actually have to do too much. It's the best job to have in these nights. Um, and I want to just talk a little bit about the idea behind tonight, and then to introduce you to our panel, and then I'll hand over to them, because they're the people you're here to hear. Um, basically... Everyone has an opinion on the future of copyright and what it means for the production and consumption of copyright content. Um, to many consumers, it's as clear as the nose on their face. Copyright is in root health, as was Monty Python's parrot. It is not only dead or dying, it's also anachronistic, protectionist, anti-democratic and downright inefficient in market terms. Creativity, they will tell you, is a shared process, cultural, not economic, communitarian, not capitalistic. Content wants to be and ought to be free. Copyright is the last throw of the dice of a dying intermediary industry, which is no longer required as we've all been disintermediated. To many producers of creative work, copyright is all that stands between a professional creative economy and the barbarians at the gate. Our economy is lubricated by intangible transactions, banking, insurance, advisory services, you know, the ones that all went tits up in 2008, <clears throat> and yes, creative output. 
Remove copyright and the property protections enjoyed by this important class of creative professionals are gone. This exposes them to a market in which the marginal cost of production of informational products, that's music, television programmes, movies, books or games, is reduced to almost zero. This gives a market value equally as small, thereby removing all incentivisation for the investment of the necessary time for production of new outputs. These are extreme views. Many find themselves somewhere in the spectrum between the two. I find myself in this middle ground, where strangely I share at least some of the views with photographer David Bailey, who in a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer attacked proposals in the Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Bill, now ACT, in relation to orphan works. I say strangely because I disagree with his assessment of the Act almost in its entirety, but I agree his statement that the subject be dealt with properly in a separate copyright bill. It seems to me rather odd that despite many piecemeal amendments to the primary body of law in the UK which regulates copyright, that's the 1988 Copyright Designs and Patents Act, an Act passed two years before the development of the web, nine years before Netflix, 11 years before SoundJam, later iTunes, 16 years before Facebook and 20 years before Spotify, and something which even predates MySpace by 15 years, we haven't had this wholesale reform yet. Finally, even the teenager whose views have always been pretty much the same, that is copyright is irrelevant to everything they do, at least have a view on it. So tonight we have a panel of five experts to discuss the difficult questions on the future of copyright. They all hold strong views and I hope they will share some of them with you. Um, as I said earlier on, it will be in two parts. We'll have some opening statements from Amelia Andersdotter, Robert Ashcroft and Luke McDonough, and then a Q&A session between Ludovic Hunter-Tilney and Egg White. But after this, you will all get a chance to be involved with questions from the floor and from Twitter. So just very quickly, some of the people involved tonight, and then I will shut up and sit down. PRS for Music is our partners tonight. They were formed in 1914 and they represent the rights of 95,000 songwriters, composers and music publishers in the UK. It's a member organisation which ensures creators are paid whenever their music is played, performed or reproduced. It is one of the champions of the importance of copyright to protect the UK music industry and provides businesses and community groups with access to over 10 million songs through its music licences. It also collects considerable sums of money for its members, but I won't embarrass him by saying how much that is. <clears throat> Our first speaker is Robert Ashcroft. He is the chief executive of PRS for Music and has been since January 2010. Um, as you've already heard, he, through his organisation, is responsible for ensuring their members are protected whenever their work is used. He used to be a senior vice president at Sony, heading their network division in Europe and mobile product division in the US and has an extensive industry uh, expertise that goes back many years. He launched the Sony Connect download service and stream man digital music service and has seen him at the forefront of digital music for many years. Our second speaker perhaps comes from the other end of the spectrum. That's Amelia Andersdotter. She's an MEP for the Pirate Party. She joined shortly after its formation in 2006 and was the international coordinator of Ung Pirate, the youth wing of the Pirate Party. Wing sounds very sort of politically charged, just the youth organisation. Um, she became a member of Parliament, the um, uh, European Parliament in December 2011 when she was the youngest member of the European Parliament. Um, she's part of the Parliamentary Committee on Industry, Research and Energy um, and is 
part of the parliamentary delegation to the Korean Peninsula and was a strong and outspoken critic of the county counterfeiting and trade agreement. I'm getting there. Number three is Luke McDonough. Dr. Luke McDonough is an LSE fellow in the Department of Law. He has a PhD in copyright law from Queen Mary University of London and an LLM from the LSE. Um, he has particular research interests in intellectual property, cultural property, information technology, and heritage. Um, he contributes to the Kluwer Copyright blog and is currently investigating copyright in the world of theatre, is his current project. And then we will have Ludovic interviewing Egg. Ludovic is probably known to many of you as the rock and pop critic for the Financial Times. He writes reviews and interviews international musicians. He's been writing in the music industry since 1998 and recently wrote an extended story for the Financial Times on digital exploitation of back catalogues and licenses. And our last guest tonight is Egg White, who is an award-winning musician, songwriter and producer. He's representing our user group here, essentially. He's worked with a number of successful commercial acts, such as Adele, Take That, Florence and the Machine, Pink, Duffy, Will Young, James Blunt, my personal favourite, Suggs, Joss Stone, Natalie Imbruglia and James Morrison. Um, he's been a musician since the 1980s. He was um, instrumental in the forming of the band Brother Beyond and moved into songwriting production in the 1990s. He's written two UK number ones, Leave Right Now by Will Young, another good one, I like that, um, and once by Diana Vickers. He also wrote another great song that I love, uh, Chasing Pavements by Adele, for which he was nominated for a Grammy Award for Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Also in 2009, he won the Ivor Novello Award for Songwriter of the Year. Um, and I think that's all you need to hear from me, so I'm now going to stop talking. Um, I'm going to now sit down and I'm going to hand over to Robert, who's going to make the first of the opening statements. Thank you very much and uh, good evening, everyone. I am really delighted to be taking part in this debate and switching my mobile phone off because it is already... <laughs> See, you put it on silence and you think that's it, but it isn't. <laughs> Actually, um, I really am very pleased to take part in this debate because it strikes a chord across the music industry, technology, media, economics, academia. We saw reflected in the Queen's speech yesterday, intellectual property is the key to our success in the modern world, whether it's personal data on Facebook, a patent for Dyson, a film, a football match, or a song. It is intangible, but it is essential. Tonight, I'm going to argue that copyright is not in crisis at all, but in fact is entering its most dynamic and exciting chapter since the Statute of Anne came into effect in 1710. Um, as you already know, my name is Robert Ashcroft. I'm the chief executive of PRS for Music. And uh, this organization has been central to the success of UK music for nearly a century. We represent some of the world's best creators, some of the most successful. Uh, Emily Sandy, David Arnold, Ed Sheeran, Calvin Harris, Mumford & Sons, all enjoyed global success in 2012. And you only have to think of others over the decades, the Paul McCartneys, the Elton Johns, Adele's, and countless others. In total, PRS Music represents the rights of nearly 100,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers. And they represent every genre and every era. 
Every time a piece of our members' music is used in television and radio, in advertising and films, it's performed live in festivals and gigs, uh, or it's made available online, digital downloads or streaming or cloud locker services, uh, for services like iTunes, Spotify, uh, YouTube and others, we collect a royalty, and that royalty is then paid to the writer of the song. We license 350,000 businesses across the UK, and in 2012, we tracked and processed 124 billion uses of music, worked out who owned the rights and paid them accordingly. Last year, and I'm going to tell you the revenue number, <laughs> we generated revenues of £642 million, contributing to a music industry that's worth £3.8 to the UK domestic uh, economy, and in addition generates an estimated £3 billion in export value. 800,000 people are employed in the creative industries in the UK, and of those, 145,000 work in the music industry. PRS for Music itself employs 750 staff in London and Peterborough. We're one of the largest employers in the music industry. Through our charity, the PRS for Music Foundation, we're also the largest funder of emerging and grassroots music in the UK. You know, we sometimes take for granted the significance of music to our cultural heritage and diversity, but we have produced world-renowned music for years, from Vaughan Williams to the Rolling Stones and Egg White. Uh, and I just love chasing pavements, by the way. Um, you know, it is part of the fabric of our society. We're one of only three net exporters of music in the world, along with the United States and Sweden. We collect royalty from 150 different countries around the world, and the network of copyright collecting societies is one of the most developed uh, sort of industry uh, collectives, if you like, uh, that exists. Copyright is essential to our members. It enables them to earn a living, and it is their only means of doing so. The performer can be paid for performing. The recording artist can sell his or her CD. The songwriter is one step removed from this value system and depends on copyright. That's why we promote it. That's why we protect its value in everything we do. We also do everything we can to license the use of our members' music. We are not an obstacle to people enjoying music. We are the very reverse. We seek to earn royalty revenue to enable our creators to earn a living. We were the first society in the world to license iTunes. We were the first society in the world to license YouTube. We were the first society in the world to license iTunes in the cloud. We have always been at the forefront of licensing on the internet and we will remain so. Now, the music business has changed over the last decade. Um, and this change is just accelerating. For decades, and for very good reason, copyright has been managed on a national basis with reciprocal agreements between collecting societies from these 150 countries. And this enables us to give access to the world's repertoire in one place. It means that a license from PRS Music 
gives a business the right to play any music from anywhere around the world, and then we ensure that the royalties are paid to the creator wherever they come from. And only two weeks ago, for example, I was in Korea uh, in the wake of Sai's success with Gangnam Style. And uh, as everybody will be uh, aware, this was an internet phenomenon. It was the first YouTube video to pass a billion views. And here in the UK, we watched it in the fourth quarter of last year 7.3 million times. Now, to put this in perspective, this is an audience equivalent of one radio play on Radio 1. It was the fact that Gangnam Style, as an internet phenomenon, broke through to radio that actually enabled it to earn money. It became popular in nightclubs and discotheques, and I was, went across to Korea bearing a, a check. But this is not to say that YouTube doesn't pay a fair royalty rate. It's just a question of audience. This is not the way that most people listen to most of their music. And if you think about it, such a phenomenon took a whole quarter to assemble 7.3 million views in this country. And if you have a hit song, how many times do you hear it played uh, on BBC Radio 1? Ten times a day for a month or so? I mean, it's, uh, it's just a different order of magnitude. I say this to illustrate that there is a healthy and rational ecosystem of copyright licensing across all forms of music usage, and that copyright is in anything but crisis. The latest challenge we face is the globalization of what was, as I said, a national business. And here, too, we're adapting rapidly to change. We're building a global repertoire database. We're adapting our international reciprocal agreements. We're combining our back offices with those of other collecting societies in pursuit of speed, efficiency, and accuracy. We signed our first nearly global license only a few weeks ago, and we're doing everything in our power to ensure that our partners in the technology business have fair, easy, and efficient access to copyright licenses. This is the approach that enabled us to earn over 50 million pounds from licensing online services in 2012. It's over twice the value to us of the live music sector and way larger than radio or music from licensing pubs. Our vision is to achieve fair value for music copyright in the face of changing technology and legislation while continuing to provide an excellent service to our members. Now, copyright can at times be complex, but its importance to successful and growing digital creative economy cannot be overstated. Our role is to ensure that those who want to use music can do so easily and cost-effectively, while ensuring that those who created it are able to earn a fair return on their efforts and so continue their craft. You'll recognize this argument from the introduction. That's why I find it puzzling when I hear the rhetoric that says that collecting societies are a barrier to the uh, creation of new music services. Our mission is to give the greatest access to music possible, not to prevent people from accessing it. How could we? We're an organization that is run by songwriters, composers, and music publishers. We represent an increasing number of creators every year who want to earn a living from making music. We love music. We've never been anti-consumer, and we don't, on the other hand, agree that content should be free. Our members make a living from writing. We simply believe that when people work, they should be paid for it, just like you pay the gas man, just like you pay your water bill, or even earn whatever salary from whatever work you do. And bear in mind 
that the majority of our members earn less than the minimum wage from their royalty earnings. And talking of earnings, sometimes you hear songwriters, creators, and they'll appear on, on the radio or in the press to say that they earn a fraction of a penny from music streaming services. But it's just a different business model. And since this is the London School of Economics, let me uh, illustrate with some numbers. If you'd bought a CD for £10, and there were 10 songs on it by 10 different songwriters, each one would have earned about 5 pence. If you'd bought the CD principally for one song, as I confess that I did with Toto's uh, I Miss the Rain in Africa, (laughs) and then my sister, who still lives in Africa, snagged it from me, so I had to buy it again on iTunes. But the, the modern alternative would have been to have bought it on iTunes, as I just said I did, and in which case the songwriter would have earned five pence again. But the nine songs that I hadn't really listened to on the CD, the songwriters for them would not have earned anything. So we're getting just a bit more granular. If your music budget had remained the same and you'd spent the same £10 but you'd bought songs on iTunes that uh, you did want to listen to, then it would have been nine different songwriters that would have earned their five pence each. So success would have been rewarded and what this looks like to me is a healthy market that is evolving from bundling goods to allowing more consumer choice. And we've accompanied that with licensing. Let me take it one step further. You subscribe to Spotify. And for comparative purposes, let me just say that instead of buying the songs you like from iTunes, you compile them into a playlist. And you cached it for offline listening on your smartphone. By the time you've listened to each song about 50 or 60 times, you're likely to have paid the songwriters exactly the same amount of money as if you had downloaded those songs. So by this token, Bernie Taupin, who wrote for Elton John, would have, been, would have made far more money from me if Spotify had existed since I was a teenager than he did through the original purchase of Madman Across the Water on the LP, through the replacement purchase because it got scratched, through the subsequent purchase on CD when it came out, and then I confess the subsequent repurchase on Super Audio CD when that came out. I did work for Sony. So the fact of the matter is that I've been listening to that song for the last 40 years, and I love it, that album. And in fact, uh, I I, I so love Indian Sunset on that uh, LP that I know the words by heart, and uh, when people can't hear me, then I sing it to myself in the car. So the model over time works out, and, and I hear that one of the The great criticisms of copyright is the length of term. And yet, in these new business models, where it's going to pay out success over the long term, not just the choice of song, but the amount you listen to it, it can take quite a long time for the full value to be captured. And uh, this is uh, something that the founders of Spotify have often said. It's not whether this pays out, it's when. Anyway, the issues then are time and mass market penetration. I'm really encouraged to see that in Sweden, the cradle, incidentally, of the Pirate Bay, Spotify has now become mainstream, and at least partly as a result, total recorded music sales actually increased by 13.8% in 2012. So we welcome initiatives where there's synergy between creator, consumer, and technology. Each is codependent, 
and a lucrative future is a harmonious one. Just as access is increased, so is the quality of content. And we've all been accustomed to a quality of viewing and listening uh, that uh, you know, takes money. It doesn't come for free. Hence the 800,000 jobs in the UK's creative industries. That's why it's never been so important to champion the value of copyright. Whole industries would collapse without being supported by these rights. Films, books, televisions. Brilliant, world-renowned institutions like the BBC, who produce high-end programmes using our composer's music, simply wouldn't exist. Thank you. So, hello. My name is Amelia Andersdotter. I'm a member of the European Parliament for the Pirate Party. We were elected on a copyright critical platform in 2009, and I took up office in December 2011 because of an administrative complication in the European Union. Um, so, I take issues with the formulation of theft of creative content. Um, because theft is something that we typically associate with physical goods. If I remove something from somebody and it's a theft, they no longer have that. Uh, whereas if I copy something like a song on the internet, actually the original owner of that copy or like wherever that copy at first existed, it will still be there. Um, also, there are many conceptual differences between something that is intangible and something that is physical. For instance, if I use somebody's chair, chair and I break it, um, we all know what happens to it. But how do I break a piece of music? How do I break an OG file? Does it mean that the bits get corrupted? Does it mean that I have quoted the music in the wrong way? If I break a piece of text, like, what does it mean? We don't have this um, value. We heard the previous speaker argue that there is no crisis in copyright uh, because they are already doing a lot of licensing at PRS, but the PRS is a licensing institute, so one would assume that they would be doing that. I think the crisis in copyright doesn't arise in the activities of the PRS necessarily, but in a place like ACS Law, a UK law firm that sent out threatening letters to citizens in the UK arguing that they had committed copyright infringement, knowing that the recipients of those letters would not have the money to defend themselves in court and therefore making a lot of revenues from potentially um, unlawful claims. Um, and so those activities were stopped by a British lawyer only years after they had first been discovered and commenced. We have similar situations in other European member states like Germany, uh, where basically unemployed lawyers get this idea that I know I'll start extorting my fellow citizens in my country and the courts and the entire legal system are complicit. Um, in Sweden, the adoption of Spotify as a mainstream technology has not come painless, painlessly. We have an increasing number of file-sharing lawsuits uh, every year where normal citizens are shamed or fined by the government for engaging in perfectly normal sharing of cultural content with their friends in order to build a social community uh, or because they had some type of cultural preference that maybe wasn't mainstream. In Korea, where um, Robert Ashcroft has been, one young man committed suicide because he was so afraid that his family would be shamed by him being accused of illegal um, file sharing that he decided to save them the dishonor by simply ending his life. So this is a crisis in copyright, that we have a legal system which does this onto its citizens. Because sharing of cultural content and the building of common cultural references is really the most human thing you could possibly imagine. 
How happy aren't you when somebody likes the same weird song that you do, even though your friends have been telling you that you're not allowed to play them at their houses ever? Um, how much do we depend on having common cultural um, reference frames also uh, between countries or between people in schools? Um, there's a reason that when we built a global communications network like the internet, the first thing that the users did was set up huge platforms where they could share cultural content. It's because otherwise we cannot build communities. We are no society if we don't build common cultural reference frames. And copyright is currently getting in the way of people doing that. Um, so um, other issues with copyright that we are having now in the legal system is that we have a huge legal uncertainty for users. Um, I would argue um, that we need to first ensure that copyright law always permits non-commercial usage, but then there's also um, types of usage that currently are like too restrictively defined in the copyright law. So the vast majority of teachers in the exercise of their daily educational activities with children will be criminal. Um, because you're actually not allowed to copy stuff if you're a teacher unless you have some kind of like prior permission. This differs from European member state. But so one issue that comes up in Sweden a lot is if you're a language teacher and you want to show your students a movie in the foreign language that you're trying to teach them, you first need some kind of permission from the municipality, but the municipalities don't want to pay for that and it's administrative hassle. So instead you show them the private copy that you purchased for household use, but then you're violating the license. Um, of that private household copy, uh, and so you're actually a criminal offender. Uh, of course, most teachers will not apply this in their day-to-day -day teachings, like they, because there's no reprimand for teaching what teachers violating the law in this way. Um, this is just kind of casual infringement that goes on. Um, but we have also issues with, with quotes. In the European Union, we're not allowed to quote sounds. This is uh, different from, for instance, the United States, where they have a very flexible regime of, of fair use, um, in copyright law. In Europe, you have the instead kind of restricted definitions where you can only copy in certain, like use the cultural work um, for non-profit purposes in certain conditions. So sound quotes are legal. That is why it's very difficult to be a DJ in many European member states. Um, the German copy society GEMA ha has been so aggressive against clubs and performing DJs that they have public protests in the street against the collecting society. So that is obviously a big problem that needs to change. Um, we have uh, libraries are increasingly concerned that they can't uh, do anything useful with their archives. Um, this is the problem, of course, of orphan works, and um, uh, but also in general that they can't make accessible, for instance, on the internet their collections. Um, and then a third issue, or fourth issue, or fifth, that we need to address is that copyright actually doesn't only apply to the members of PRS. Um, it applies to a wide range of actors in society. Um, and copyright is actually one of the more quickly expanding intellectual property rights domains right now. So something like this, for instance, can be copyrighted in some member states. In, the, in Sweden and in the, in, in the Netherlands, the courts approved as copyrightable the design of a small flashlight. The flashlight had previously enjoyed protection by something we called industrial design rights, but the designer of the flashlight decided after the term of protection for um, industrial designs that we, the legislators, have decided are reasonable for industrial designs. Um, when it had lapsed, he wanted more. So now instead he has a well, lifetime plus 70 years of protection for his design. Is that reasonable? It will also be affected by all of the um, changes or, or no changes or the enforcement procedures that we put in copyright. Um, so 
currently the situation that we're facing in the European Union or kind of also in the European Parliament is we have this um, rapidly growing beast that goes into every sector of society and that is causing a lot of people to be upset in scientific publishing and libraries and all of these places. And we've unfortunately consolidated kind of both in, at an international level and at the European level a, a framework which is very difficult to fix. So um, when Robert is talking about licensing, uh, what he's actually saying is that we shouldn't be opening up any of the international agreements or the European directives that are currently regulating uh, copyright. And this is like the first big thing that actually, yes, we do need to open those up. Um, I would argue, of course, that file sharing for non-commercial reasons should be, um, should be legal, but even if you were not of that position, we currently place the copyright work definition at 11 words and up. Since 2008 in the European Union, um, copyright can be anything from 11 words and up. What does this mean for the right to quote? How many times have you quoted a sentence which is longer than 11 words? It makes you potentially liable for a criminal, for a criminal lawsuit. Just be aware. Uh, so this clearly needs to there clearly needs to be some type of change that clearly will be a very traumatic process but there's many users in Europe and in the European member states that are suffering badly from the current system and I think socially we become poorer um, if we are not able to make culture a base of common interaction. Welcome to you all. Thank you for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to be part of this debate. Um, it's a very interesting time to be having this particular debate. I suspect that if we, we had this exact title of debate ten years ago, the things that we'd be talking about and the rhetoric that we'd be using would be quite different. And with that in mind, I'd like to begin by talking about a few historical examples um, that illustrate the fact that the music industry has always been um, an industry that has transformed itself. And in fact, it's in a constant state of transformation. The music industry as we know it is really only about 100 years old, if that. Um, it's difficult to understand fully now that um, just over 100 years ago, the, uh, really, really the only form of recorded music was the piano roll. And the advent of the gramophone record was truly revolutionary. When radio became um, an object of mass production and millions of people started to listen, there were a lot of voices within the music industry who said that this would be bad for the music industry, that um, record companies and artists would lose out because people would hear music on the radio for free and therefore would not need to buy records. So. That is, is an example of, again, a prediction that has not turned out to be accurate. Similarly, during the 1980s, it was common to pull out a record sleeve and find attached to the record the slogan, home taping is killing music. And I'm sure some people in the audience are old enough to remember that, even if other <laughs> people aren't. And again, that's another example of a rhetoric of an industry under attack that doesn't actually reflect the reality of uh, what's actually happening. And in fact, I mean, during the, the CD era, um, the record companies tended to pay 
musicians half the amount that they would pay them for um, vinyl records because it was classed as an experimental format and they managed to sneak that into a lot of their contracts. Um, which is an example of something else that is always apparent when you look at historical um, studies of the music industry, which is that artists have always had to fight to be paid. That's a constant. And it's a relatively recent thing that artists have actually been paid for uh, the people listening to their music. If you go back to the 1920s and 30s, many musicians, if they were paid at all for uh, Uh, going into the recording studio and cutting a record. It was a one-off fee. Uh, Black musicians in particular earned um, very, very little. So that element of the music industry has remained constant. And one of the things that's happened since the kind of year zero of the Napster uh, revolution, if you want to call it that, is that um, the music industry has accelerated into a new transformation, as I think both... Robert and Amelia talked about. Um, One of the things that I think is undoubtedly a positive thing that has come out of this is that people are listening to a much wider range of music than they used to. Um, People have access to an enormous variety of music that they never had access to before. Um, You don't have to trawl through record shops trying to find an obscure B-side from a band from the 1970s that you liked you'll probably find that someone has uploaded that to YouTube. Um, Through file sharing, lots and lots of -of out-of-print albums are now available for people uh, to listen to. Um, The flip side of that, and the element that could be described as a crisis here, is the fact that copyright has been ignored by a lot of people over the last decade. Um, at least in some senses. A lot of people have downloaded music without paying a copyright license for it. So they've committed what could be described under the law as a copyright infringement. So there's been a clash between what people have been doing and what their expectations of listening to music and experiencing music are and what the law actually is. But I don't believe that the music industry itself is actually in crisis. I think the music industry today is as healthy as it's ever been, if not more healthy. And part of that is to do with uh, the fact that the record companies today have a lot less power than they used to. Um, It was relatively common 20, maybe even 15 years ago, for more or less everyone to buy the same album. Everybody bought the Michael Jackson album or the Oasis album. It's very rare uh, today for those kinds of um, examples to come up. Very rare, as the case of Adele, you do have those kinds of examples. But um, I think people today listen to a much wider range of music than they previously did, and I think that that is genuinely a positive thing. Um, One other thing that has transpired over the past decade is that certain types of, as Amelia pointed out, Um, aggressive lawsuits taken towards fans of music who have um, essentially undertaken copyright infringement. Um, You see as well surveillance techniques that are more associated with anti-terrorism used with regard to what people are doing online. So a lot of that, I think, has really obscured the fact that the music industry has transformed itself and is continuing to do so. 
And I think that we, I, I would agree with Robert that we are actually in an upswing at the moment for the, for the music industry. And I think that the, the statistics do bear that out. This is the first year where the um, Phonogram Association has, has published its figures for last year that there's an increase in overall uh, royalties um, in over a decade, the first increase. Um, PRS for Music's own revenues for performance rights have increased every year of the, over the past decade. And I think that the role for copyright is an important one um, in this area. And despite the fact that it has been, been ignored in some senses by many people, it still does form the basis for the way musicians get paid. Um, what I think is going to happen in the near future, and what is indeed what is happening, is that we will be paying for music in different ways to the way that we have, we have been used to paying for it in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Um, if we'd had this debate even five years ago, I don't think there would have been as many optimistic uh, opinions about the music industry. Um, I, I, certainly, um, the licenses for live music, when you go to a live music festival, the license fee that PRS for Music takes from the festival is higher now than it used to be up until very recently. So that obviously, that cost is passed on to the, uh, the person who buys the ticket for the music festival. Similarly, if you go to the gym and you work out and there's music being played, a license from PRS is, is um, required, and those fees have also been increasing. Amelia talked about the German nightclubs example. Um, the German equivalent of PRS recently hiked the fees for nightclubs in Berlin uh, for playing music. Again, all of those costs are inevitably passed, passed along to people like us who go out and uh, dance and, and, and uh, go to music festivals and participate. Um, so we are paying for music in ways that perhaps we don't even think that we are. Now, one thing that is also clear is that at present the levels of compensation for new streaming services and for live music and other types of performing rights have not reached the levels of compensation for musicians that musicians would like and that I think that they are entitled to for the work that they do. I would certainly agree that musicians deserve to be uh, paid. Um, I think they do perform uh, uh, something incredibly valuable. Um, and so the, I, don't, I think there may be a crisis of copyright, as I said. I don't think the music industry in crisis. I think that we're in a position of transformation. And the issue that needs to be solved is getting the levels of incomes of musicians up to a more reasonable level. And even though the incomes are increasing, the revenues are increasing, they're not doing so fast enough for the, to compensate for the loss of revenues that have come in other areas. So, in some ways, uh, we have a mixed situation. I think the situation is still transforming itself. But a lot of the naysayers 10 years ago would have said there won't be a music industry in, in 10 years if we continue along with the Napster-type illegal download, if you want to call it that. Um, in actual fact, the music industry, as it always has, has responded to a new challenge and some of those issues, some, some, in some ways successfully, in other ways not so successfully. And the constant has been that once again the artists have had to fight to be paid and will continue to do so. So on that note, I'll finish and we can hear from one of the artists in that position, Ed.
Okay. Um, first of all, let's uh, just uh, as a songwriter, someone who has loads of copyright deals. When will Chasing Pavements, a song that's been mentioned here, when will it be in the public domain? I don't really know. I gather I probably have to die. Right. Or, I mean, I guess <laughs> the performance will be due in 50 years, won't yep. it? And then the copyright, I think, the copyright that relates to songwriting, I think goes considerably beyond so that. Death plus, I think, 70 years, is, yep. is that right? right? So it's 70 years after that fell day. So to my, basically, my beneficiaries of my will get it. That's where you're stayed for 70 years. Um, And do you own your own copyrights or does a publishing company, so for Chasing Pavements for instance, is that a copyright that you have? Mm, I think I get it in about a month. Um, Basically what happens is you sign a deal, you get paid a sum of money at the beginning of signing a deal. Um, For that you're then bound to a, a publishing company for three years, five years, seven years, something like that. And then the deal finishes and the publishing company holds on to that right to collect it for a period of time, which nowadays is like five, seven, nine years. Um, all that stuff that happened in the 1950s, well, basically, every, you know, that, that business that happened where Elton John tried to take his publisher to court, um, the Beatles tried to, because those deals, when they were signed, were forever. So those songs never, ever reverted to the songwriters. And more than that, the publisher who signed them for basically nothing, got a 50% cut on it. Now, things have changed, changed hugely. It used to be that the publisher would keep a copyright forever and would get a 50% cut on it until absolutely everybody and all their relatives are dead. Um, and I, nowadays, basically, you get a deal which in the 80s was a 60-40 split. By the early 90s, it risen to a 70-30 split in favor of the writer. Now, typical rates are 75, anywhere from 75 up to about 95%. Um, obviously, if you take a 95% cut, and you get no advance. Um, the higher the cut you take, and typically these deals nowadays have five, seven years where the copyright is held onto and is owned by the publishing company. But some of these deals, actually, for a copyright never even goes to the company. You remain the copyright holder of it throughout. I'm at Cobalt at the moment who are offering a deal which is extremely challenging to lots of publishers. Um, it's a high royalty rate, they pay no advances, they collect very, very, very well indeed. And quickly, they account four times a year instead of twice a year. Um, the downside is you don't get any money up front. But I don't think the copyright is even owned by them. It's kind of care-held by them or something. Um, so the nature of publishing and what publishers can take has changed massively in the last 50 years um, in favour of the artist, in favour of the writer. The other thing I think I need to say is that I'm not here really as an expert I kind of feel like I'm here more as an audience member. I don't have a fixed position. I have a very, very flexible position. I feel as if I'm mainly here as a hypocrite. Do you feel? I mean, do you feel you have <laughs> adequate? Uh, <laughs> do you feel you have adequate copyright protection? Yeah. You're happy with it. Yeah. Totally. Um, I'm more than happy with it. You don't mind having to sign it away to a publishing company. You're quite happy to no. have that period of well, time. Well, the one thing, I suppose, the place where I'm kind of more on your side is, you know, and I know that no one's been talking about this, but the sheer quantity of theft that goes on in writing songs. Um, there are very obvious, very concrete, clear to all people elements of a song that you can't nick. You can't nick. You can nick a title, I think, but you can't nick a tune. You can't nick whole strings of words, especially not in combination with a tune. But the actual building blocks, the secret building blocks of songs, are basically the chords. And as far as I know, there's no protection anywhere for those chords. So plagiarism, then, is a problem? I mean, to say that... I'm not saying it's a problem. In fact, I'm saying it's the opposite of a problem. Right. I suppose my position is, it has always been the case 
It is the only way to move music forward. It's astonishing that it's not legally protected. I'm delighted it's not, mm-hmm. because absolutely every single thing I do has a precedent or 58. Um, you know, I know that there are three planks. If you get accused of plagiarism, there are kind of three planks. I forget the third. The first one is you've got to say, no, it's not exactly the same. That's the obvious one. But the second one, which is much more subtle, which is a great get-out-of-jail-free card, is if you find two examples of the motif they say you've nicked. If you can find two examples, then it's game over. Um, because how are you or they to know who files the suit? If there are two, there could be 2,000. Um, now, that's just a very obvious example, but basically music is... So I suppose I am declaring a hand, which is slightly contrarian here. You know, but I have these enormous protections for certain aspects of what I do. Um, and, and I think they're a little over the top. And I would be delighted if someone would actually take chunks of the song. And in a way, one of the advantages now of owning lots of my copyrights is that I have the power not to sue. Um, whereas if I'm hugely indebted to a publishing company because I've taken a lot of money off them, and then there is a lawsuit because somebody alleges that they've nicked something from one of my songs, I have no way of staying the hand of that publishing company. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, as the sole beneficiary of it, or the main beneficiary, I'd be able to say no. No. But you're saying it's quite hard to prove the plagiarism. I mean, it's something in, in well, terms of would, the artistic. You seem to be saying that from an artistic side, songwriting is rather, as uh, Amelia said, a sort of cultural commons, one in which well, ideas can be shared. it's very easy to allege right. that something's been nicked. And then it would be about the person to counter-allege, to come up desperately, go searching everywhere for every example of that motif, and to go, gah, I found it. The famous story is where a, the drifters sued somebody for stealing a song, um, let's say six years ago or ten years ago they launched a lawsuit against somebody for stealing a song in ni- that they'd written in 1972 and the publishing company reeled in horror called in the expert the expert goes ha 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 but you see the drifters nicked it from Little Anthony and the Imperials in 1957 so we and we just bought their copyrights Warner Chapel had just bought their copyrights so we counter allege a suit for all the money they earned in 1972 and the 35 years of interest they've earned on it, and, and of course the lawsuit disappears. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there are examples where people have used this you know, in various nefarious ways or whatever. You haven't ever suffered any particularly egregious um, uh, plagiaristic assault on any of your songs, have you? No one has ever taken anything that I thought was mine as opposed to everybody else's. I thought I might have heard a little motif in a Bruno Mars song, but <laughs> I was just delighted. You know, I had a very good feeling. You know, and Actually, I've got quite strong feelings about it. As, and another aspect of songwriting song would be sampling. I mean, it'd be similar, wouldn't it? I presume oh, you're very relaxed about sampling. Be very I mean... careful. Well, sampling is... <laughs> sampling is icky. You know, sampling's quite icky. And in ways, sampling's culturally interesting because actually if you don't sample your record tends to sound out of date. People's tastes change. It used to be in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. This is salient too. It cost a lot to make records a long time ago. The gear, when you'd walk into a studio back in 1983 or something, you'd be looking at a quarter of a million quid's worth of gear when a nice house in Notting Hill was maybe 80,000 quid. Um, And it cost a lot to make it. It cost that gear wasn't very good. Tape doesn't really sound all that good. You've got to disguise the faults. You've got to really bloody work hard to make it sound good on tape. You've also got to have really good instruments and good players. 
it's much, much easier now with computers. I know that we're saying that computers taketh away, but they also give. It's very easy to make a good sounding record on computers, very, very cheaply, in fact, free. Um, and record companies are still paying advances to producers, but they don't really have to. But of course, as soon as I say that, the reason I'm saying that is because the producers are being held aloft by the copyrights. You have know, the fact that they will make some money in the back end. But if someone comes and writes with me, they don't pay any money to work with me and I don't pay any money to work with them. They come into my studio and it's free. It's a day of my time, a day of theirs. I don't have an assistant. The electricity that my gear uses is probably five quid a week. And I use old gear because it sounds better and it appreciates in value. So I'm bearing no losses as a result of people coming in. And it's free. So I, it's purely meritocratic. I only stand to make an upside on the, on the basis of the copyright that the song may or may not earn. Um, in America, they do it very differently. They pay producers quite a lot of money to knock up tracks for them entirely speculatively from their side. And it's just a little odd because, you know, most of what I and most people write is very bad. Most mm -hmm. things miss. Of every, I write 60 songs in a year, something like that. If I'm really lucky, one will be a hit. Um, there might be 10 that are good and that fail for various reasons. Perhaps a singer singing them wasn't the right person or maybe just luck goes against you, stuff goes. There might be 10 good songs in there. There might be one killer. And that's in a really good year. Of course, the difference between one killer and no killers is huge. Um, anyway, I'm not really going yeah. anywhere here. And you've got this, you've got this, now this huge back catalogue, really, haven't you? You've got Duffy, Adele, Florence and the Machine, yeah. Will Young. It goes back some time. What proportion of your revenues each year, would you say? Um, but it would be from copyright of older songs. I don't mean to say that new songs that are a hit. You know, you've done Tom Adele you're working with, aren't well, you? Well, I'm amazed to discover how long the, the tail is. That's another thing. I, did, I haven't looked for years, in fact. I just don't look. I go, whoa, that's nice. Um, but I don't look anymore. But the tail is very, very surprisingly long, including for songs rather strangely that I haven't heard on the radio for bloody years. Mm -hmm. You know, the still leave right now is probably still bringing 40,000 quid or something like that, maybe more a year, a significant sum of money. And I haven't heard it on the radio for five years. So either it takes a long time to come through from certain obscure territories, or, and in fact, some of it bloody well does. There's a Jim Morrison song, James Morrison song, Give Me Something. Suddenly, it made 80,000 quid a year and a half ago. <laughs> um, you know, from having dropped down to nothing, it must have got held up somewhere. Um, right. But, you know, so you get strange things that happen. And even, I don't know, I mean, the weird, the ones that I really enjoy are songs that never came out. Um, I've had certain songs that make money that were just demos. You know, they never left the studio. And I really want to hear why that song, Trouble, is making money in Korea. Um, <laughs> you know, so things, things happen if you look at your royalty statements things happen but the tale's surprisingly long and now I've had 12 years of enjoying these long tales you know can you get used to it uh, and let's just let's finish off by just flipping it around to the performing side because Egg as, as was mentioned has a, has a uh, oh, yeah, both a history yeah, yeah. 80s obsessive so we heard he will remember him from Brother Beyond well you left for the hits didn't you yeah I left um, and Egg also is a singer songwriter who had an album out in 2010 and you have a deal with Parlophone I think don't you is that right well I did for about five minutes oh, okay yeah, 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 but what's it like on that side I mean it's a different a different law pertains there I mean to say a different length of time do you feel that that's adequate protection as well for the performer you know what, I'm really out of that world. Mm -hmm. I can't actually give an answer that would have any meaning at all. My instinct is that songwriters have amazing protection. There are just such differences. 
producers, for instance, have no protection. If you do a version on a song for a record company and you think you're really getting it right, the record company can put it at any moment in time and it goes to somebody else and you have absolutely no say over anything that happened there in that production, nothing. Songwriting, the first second you write anything, you have astonishing rights and they are unviolable. So, you know, the two planks of my job have completely different levels of protection. You know, I can really get 15 days into doing six bloody versions of a song, Tom Adele, and it ultimately, we never quite crack it. And it goes to somebody else, and me and Tom throw our hands up in the air, and it was all for nothing. You know, so none of the ideas that move forward in that way have any protection at all. Um, anyway, I don't know. There are just a few things. I suppose something else that hasn't been talked about here is the distorting effect that making money has on artists. I mean, everyone here is saying that it's crucial that composers get paid. It might also be argued it's crucial they don't get paid too much. Um, you know, it's very, very uneven what's happening in the PRS's distributions, hugely uneven. Of course, people would be arguing it's purely meritocratic and all that kind of thing. But, you know, particularly going back 30 years, when people made money 30, 40 years ago, they were made. Um, you got a song on a Michael Jackson album, and that's it. It's three really nice central London houses just on one song on one album. You know, thankfully, those days are gone, and you have to continue to work. But there's also something that's always struck me as a little bit odd. But I do a day's work, and yeah, sure, most of them fail, and I don't get paid under the model that we're currently in. You know, say the copyright model massively changed, and there was very little copyright protection, then I would start charging people to work with them, and they would start paying, I hope. Um, and, but it has a distorting effect on what you do. You know, that actually when something goes so well, you make so much money from it, you're not obliged to work anymore. I don't know, I'm not really going anywhere here, but I suppose I'm just saying it does affect your output, doing mm -hmm. terribly well. Um, I'm also interested in your point um, about culture. Where's the boundary between something which is culturally common and protected and, where, and something that is culturally common and not protected? You know, I know that that boundary is getting increasingly eroded and mm -hmm. looked at with the internet. And you know, I do feel, I suppose, in a nice unconscious way as if music is common cultural stuff that um, the people define themselves by it, that they define the people that they hang out in relation to what music they listen to and I don't I, I, I wouldn't want to impede that um, so you know I really am here as a massive hypocrite you know somebody who's stolen huge amounts of stuff without actually being legally obliged to pay for it and also you know, but then after a while, as soon as two people do it, well, I can go, well, it's totally safe, it's common. You know, these are common ingredients. It's fudgy. It is fudgy. It's really fudgy. Um, well, I think on Egg's revelation that he's a hypocrite who's stolen loads. <laughs> we should bring things to a pretty rapid halt. <laughs> Thank you very much, Egg. Cool. Right, well, I think we've benefited quite a lot from a, a spectrum of, of ideas and a spectrum of commentary there, um, from the value of copyright to the distortive effect of copyright. I, I think if I heard Egg right, he said he was being paid too much. Um, 
I'm always open to charity, if you want to get rid of some of me. <laughs> but this is the opportunity now for you to put questions towards the panel. You can do it anonymously via Twitter, if you want, by using the hashtag LSE copyright or by sending it to at LSE law. Um, or if anyone would like to do it non-anonymously, would you like to put your hand up and the, wait for the microphone to come to you and then identify yourself and ask your question? So, right, we'll start at the front and then we've got a second one up there. Thank you. It's been fascinating so far. Thank you. Um, I'm Stuart from Music Ally, so I write about the industry. I wanted to ask you about um, Google and Google's role as a friend and or foe for copyright and creative industries because it seems to be on many different sides of this debate. In some places it's seen as a copyright infringer, other places it's working with licenses. And I wonder what you see its role as and how you'd like to see that kind of company in a technology space kind of moving forward. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I mean, one of the things uh, that has happened over the last 15 years is that uh, internet service providers and also search engines like Google but Google in particular, obviously it's the biggest and most valuable one, uh, have suddenly emerged uh, in a way that um, the music industry uh, has found it difficult to deal with. Um, so, for example, in the, in the 1990s, it was possible for the music industry and Hollywood to lobby very easily in the U.S. for um, tighter copyright laws. Um, when, they, when a similar thing tried to happen a couple of years ago in the U.S. under the SOPA law, um, there was a counter-lobby um, by the ISPs and by Google. And effectively, the legislation collapsed because the, the two lobby groups cancelled each other out. Because obviously, uh, the ISPs have benefited economically from people accessing content online, a lot of the times not paying for it. So, um, and they, they've, they've resisted, for example, things in the UK such as the Digital Economy Act. They took judicial review actions to stop that. They've been lobbying against it. So, um, there's definitely a uh, within the within the UK economy uh, that has emerged in a way that that is almost in opposite to some of the forces within the music industry who are pro copyright. Um, and that's one of the reasons for government inaction because these are also these com these companies are also creating economic growth and it's and government often falls between the two stools and does nothing because it's afraid of um, disrupting those economic models the model of Google the model of BT and also then um, annoying its its own voters as well by bringing in stricter rules so. Yeah, um, so, I mean, Google is a very interesting case because they're so large. So um, they can actually counter-lobby on, on copyright proposals. But then what we're seeing in the European Union now, when the Commission sets up the Licenses for Europe platform, which is basically uh, a facility that the European Commission created in order not to deal with the large and obvious problems that we have with the actual legislation, and Google isn't doing much because they're in a very privileged situation where actually they can get the licenses because they are so large. And almost any change that is made in the copyright framework, um, which goes to the extent of like licensing or so, will be beneficial to Google because they can get licenses. Only their competitors will suffer um, from um, uh, not having a change in the copyright legislation. Um, but so... Um, 
what we do know also is like with the I think the copyright law was consolidated at an international level with like World Intellectual Property Organization agreements in 95 or 96. Um, the, the last revision of the Berne Convention must have been somewhere around that time also. And so we actually have an incredibly strong and kind of not permissive copyright framework which was a uh, big way before actors like Google and ISPs started making money off of people downloading the illegal content. And this is kind of the, the problem that the copyright industries were able to lobby into an international uh, framework, like very strict legislation that is now creating huge problems, not primarily for uh, established parties, uh, but actually mostly for any kind of new and innovative services or distribution mechanisms that, that could come, come up. Um, so, but I would watch out a bit for, for Google because they're so large and maybe think instead of um, the plethora of services that aren't developing um, because Google right now are more or less in a safe spot. I think there's a huge danger. We might be almost agreeing with each other, Amelia. <laughs> um, I think Google is a complex company and it's obviously a, a young company and within Google it's grown very fast there are different interests and different divisions uh, you know the people who earn the money off uh, the ad sales and the people who operate the Android business, the people who are uh, launching uh, the music services there's YouTube, there's the Android uh, uh, inspired uh, uh, locker services and uh, shortly rumoured to be a streaming service coming along I think generally across the company you see that they are moving to make more money from content. Uh, there are special television channels can be made available for a fee on YouTube. Um, at the same time, I think that if, you, if another part of your company is acting in such a way that depresses the price of music, it increases your bargaining power. Uh, I find it a little depressing that if you put in the, the term YouTube into the Google search bar, the, the recommended uh, alternative search results start off with YouTube to MP3 downloader, YouTube to MP4 converter. Now, these are not Google properties, but they nonetheless appear, and they are used by people to scrape the YouTube site and to turn what are licensed streams into unlicensed downloads. So there's all this kind of conflicting stuff going on within the company. Uh, I think that there is a drift in general, if you can discern a pattern in it, to say that they as growth in ad revenues begins to slow down, that there is more opportunity that they see uh, in making money directly from content. And I think that that is actually in the interest of uh, rights holders. On the other hand, I do share Amelia's concern about the effect on smaller players. And one of the things that I would really love to see is concerted action across the industry to create a framework that enables small companies to come to market in an experimental fashion. Um, and, and have easy access to licenses at that stage when they don't have the legal resources uh, of a Google to be able to deal with the admitted uh, complexity of assembling all the licenses you need to launch a service. And the next question Hi there. Thank you very much to the panel for a very interesting debate so far. Um, one of the difficulties the industry is facing with, as I understand it, I'm new to the industry, is that um, uh, music is increasingly licensed and consumed and used across borders. 
And as Ludovic said, um, the industry is constantly trying to catch up with changes, and it seems that the, the model that we have that was largely built in the last century isn't entirely adapted to the, to the, the situation we face now, where in terms of uh, knowledge around who owns uh, the music, who owns the songs, you have a number of societies in, in, in different countries and publishers who all have a slightly different view about who owns all the songs, right? And slightly different or sometimes very different. And I question for Robert and perhaps others. Do you think in that context um, what the industry is trying to do at the moment, which is trying to create shared services, initiatives such as uh, the Global Repertoire Database, for instance, that tries to create a catalogue of the world's music so that there is a single view of who owns all the songs and everyone can agree on that. Do you think that has a role to play in uh, addressing the concerns you talked about, including these new business models, uh, Robert, you just mentioned, but also the facilitating the ease of licensing and, uh, and perhaps the accuracy of payment, you might be paid too much, but uh, you do want to be paid accurately, Egg. Um, so do you think these kind of things have a role to play? Thanks. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and uh, I personally have been a, a big champion of the Global Repertoire Database. And I, I suppose we've got two levels of interest in that. One, we are a large exporting nation, and it is in the interest of our members to make sure that our works are accurately registered around the world. So put that declaration of interest uh, in there. But also I think that we are a business that must do the right thing. You know, I I simply cannot stand here and say that uh, I will make money knowingly uh, out of something that is incorrectly registered. And I think that we have a duty to uh, uh, the creative industries at large to do everything in our power to make sure that the right people are paid at the right time the right amount of money. So I'm a very strong proponent of the Global Reptile Database, and I believe that it's an essential building block. The other things that we're doing, where we're making investments jointly with other societies to share back office systems, are mostly uh, intended to improve efficiency and, and reduce cost. The, the rate at which the use of music is uh, increasing uh, can defeat uh, the economics of collecting uh, the money and, and paying it to the right people. So it's no secret that we're entering into partnerships. We have already with the uh, Swedish counterpart, STEM. We're in discussions with others. We expect to make announcements very shortly. But that whole idea of having an efficient shared back office uh, is important. Uh, But the global repertoire database is vital. I think one thing to add to that idea about having accuracy of uh, registration and such like, is um, that there's a very inefficient problem at the heart of the music industry currently, which is that there's a huge quantity of artists whose contracts were drawn up, which are still legally applicable, were drawn up in the days when digital music wasn't even a sci-fi dream. There are people who signed their contracts in the 60s and 70s who are now seeing their back catalogues exploited, often very profitably, on iTunes and Spotify and the like, and turning up on television programs, who are not at all happy about the way, uh, the, the rate of return that they receive from their songs. In the States, there are a number of court cases currently winding their slow way through the law courts brought by musicians against the major labels, um, arguing that they should be paid more money for their old songs, that they should be paid not a royalty rate of between 10 and 15%, but rather um, a, license, uh, a licensing rate, which was more like 40 to 50%. So, I mean, this is, at the moment, all of these court cases are mired in this sort of um, jarndyce versus jarndyce style sort of um, expensive um, uh, scleroticism. And... Uh, it's a problem, basically, because there's a lot of musicians who are very unhappy with the way they feel that these old songs have not been brought to um, uh, updated legally to the modern age.
Uh, hi there, my name is Harry. Uh, I'm an author and a member of Pirate Party UK. Um, so my question is, does the panel have any comment on Kickstarter, the, the phenomenon of crowdfunding? Um, from a personal point of view, uh, as an author, I had an advance for my book, and I found out that somebody writing a very similar book funded theirs through Kickstarter and raised about five times as much money as I did, um, just straight away. So, uh, you know, that, that's an impact on me. Uh, and then more generally, as a member of Pirate Party, I advocate, you know, sort of uh, the legalization of all non-commercial file sharing. And some people say, well, you know, how will, how will people who make record records make money? And, and we like to point to Kickstarter and say, look at this thing. It made $300 million was raised by people just giving money up front for, you know, digital things that are then going to be copied and given for free to the whole world. And so we, I mean, a uh, sort of naive idealist, I think this is a solution to all the world's problems. Um, what do you think? I suppose I've got a simple question. How on earth do people who gave the money to Kickstarter get their money back? Um, that's basically the, the, that's the one thing I don't understand here. They people, don't. They don't. Well, I guess then it's well, fucked. How do people who gave the money, $300 million, the individual people, people don't normally give money unless they go, I've got an expectation of getting it back. No, no, no. So, so you just donate over the goodness of your heart because you think this thing needs to be made. If I don't give this artist money, it won't get made. Okay. Well, I suppose I'm reminded of a slightly more complicit version or something similar, which is the business that's happened in pop music, whereby singers come into my studio and they go, you know what, I'm not actually going to make any money off this record. Even if I sell, I've realised I've sold 1.2 million copies of this record, I made no royalties on it. But the great news is it's just flooding in with live. And so I think what you're seeing with Kickstarter is just a similar version of a kind of complicity with the audience where they go, you know what, I'm getting a lot for free, and I know that I was quite happy to pay 10 quid for a live ticket, and I know that they're now charging 75 quid, but for some bonkers reason, I'm going to go and see this bloody awful gig for 75 quid. And people <laughs> are doing it, and it's totally strange. I totally fail to understand it, but they are. And I'm guessing that it is a complicity on the part of the audience, some kind of self-healing system. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah. So, um, well, Kickstarter is an interesting phenomenon, and this thing about consumer rights and how do you get your money back is actually discussed, I guess, in the Kickstarter community as they want to have some type of refund if your project wasn't able to launch in the end, then what happens? But that's essentially like the entire structure of venture capitalism, isn't it? You throw money at something and you hope that it will turn out all right, and what Kickstarter is making it possible for people to do is... is um, be like a miniature venture capitalist. Um, and it works differently for different films. We actually had an event in the European Parliament last year with the, Blend the Blender Foundation. They make this um, 3D graphical tool which is called Blender. They've made three Creative Commons films uh, that are computer-like animated. They're super, super cute, and I highly recommend that you go to their website and, and see, this, see these films. Um, but so what they found was that um, crowdsourcing um, may not necessarily be the only way that they can get money for such a film project. Um, so crowdsourcing works up until a certain point, but when you need like very large or very, very long-term investments, 
Um, you can combine um, crowdsourcing with something like a public grant or some other type of investments. And in the film industry, it's very, very common that they actually take money from national film institutes. I had this time period when I was going a lot to Taringa.net, which is like the largest Spanish-speaking website in the world, like in Argentina, it's very dominant. And some kind individual had put up like a lot of very good Argentinian films on uh, file, like CyberLockers, that type of service. So I just downloaded like 15 Argentinian films and I spent two or three weeks watching through all of these because Argentinian Spanish is very beautiful. Um, but so in the beginning you see who funds the film and actually in, the, in like 60% of the cases it's the French National Film Institute which is a state-run institution in, in France. And so I guess you could combine um, crowdsourcing for film and media with that kind of grant and maybe for some music productions you would do that also um, and then, like, it, it just depends. Now I'm playing this game called Faster Than Light, which was Kickstarter-funded. It's a fantastic computer game, highly recommended, but also highly addictive, so be careful. <laughs> um, and uh, so they're getting money, apparently, from... First, they had the Kickstarter to launch the project, but now they're also selling the game kind of DRM-free, very cheap. So if you want to pay, like, $10 to play this game, you can. Um, and I think that would be my view of, of, of crowdsourcing. It's a top-notch model, but in combination with other models also. Once more, we are, we're agreeing. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a very interesting experiment to see where it goes. Uh, certainly, uh, in another context, in another life, then I'm looking at Kickstarter to raise money for a venture I originally founded with some friends six years ago. And uh, we're at that stage now where we need to bring in some more money. So it's, a, it's a, one of the ways that we're looking at possibly funding it. That's not quite the same thing as saying we're about to write a song or create a film and we want some money and, and there's, there's going to be no return. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, that's great. And lots of those. But, I mean, what we'd be doing is we'd be selling shares in it. So we would be promising to, to return some capital. And, but, I mean, I think it's, it's up to the individual people who use the site who want to contribute the terms on which they do so. And it's very interesting to see the Internet throws up these possibilities. Just before we take another question from the floor, um, something that came in on the Twitter feed, and I, I'm going to address this initially to Luke, and if anyone else wants to pick this up. Um, if we're saying the, the, sort of the copyrights in crisis, it suggests perhaps that there's something wrong with the current copyright law. So is there any evidence as an academic commentator, that creativity is being stifled by current copyright law. Um, and you know, do you have any examples of that occurring? And if not, then you know, are we wasting our time? Um, I think that's a very interesting question. I would sympathize with Egg uh, that copyright does tend to protect too much. Um, the reason for that is a historical one, to give authors the widest possible protection. But the problem is, is that if you take it to its logical conclusion, you can end up, it can end up having a seriously restrictive effect. So one, one of the things that Egg uh, point, pointed out was that a title cannot be copyright. Um, there are recent UK cases where they say potentially a newspaper headline could be copyright, a title could be copyright if it's sufficiently original. So um, very short uh, um, pieces of melody 
even perhaps chord progressions, which would really screw up a lot of Egg's plagiarism. Um, You've seen some arguments for uh, for that. So the... Um, perhaps the, the collapse in some copyright revenues over the last decade has led to some musicians arguing for more and more to be protected. Um, and that is, that is definitely a worrying sign. It's still a little bit in flux because these cases are still making their way through the courts. But people are certainly trying to protect a lot more than they previously did. I think I probably know the answer to this, given what he said earlier, but... Have you ever felt stifled by copyright law, Egg? No. <laughs> um, you know what, actually, and the terrible thing is I've been very blind to it, actually. I have taken it for granted and, you know, right in the heart of this hypocrisy business, have just profited, for, profited from it without actually thinking twice. Um, no, I mean, I've, I've had very few brushes with it, too. I had a brush whereby I took something for a, a song, and David Bowie's song, and it was great, and then I took it, I then left that song, that song was a failure, and then I had wrote another song and took it from the song and changed it all back to Bowie's original um, without realising and got sued, appropriately enough, for a complete nick. Um, and... Actually, it went, you know, it was just, I mean, in a way, there's not much to it. It's an interesting story. Because there were three copyright holders instead of only one, instead of going absolutely and taking the whole lot, they left us with 50% um, for the bits that we contributed to the song. And that was actually probably a fair apportionment. You know, but actually, once you've done that, you know, there are stories. You know, I, I haven't, you know, but the classic one is the one about the Rolling Stones and Andrew Luke Holton. Sometimes copyright just goes in the wrong places. There are some things... So this is my not my beef, but my sense, is that there are some things which actually should be copyrighted and aren't, and there are some things which are copyrighted at The story is that Verve song came out, and I could even be wrong about this story. I might be telling it slightly wrong, but it's a good one. That Verve song came out, Bittersweet Symphony. It comes out, the Stones launch a lawsuit, as I understand it, alleging that basically they've completely ripped off something, which indeed they had. Um, Andrew Luke Holton, the manager of the Stones, recorded a record of the Rolling Stones played by string orchestra. And it's a terrible record with one brilliant arrangement on it. And that brilliant arrangement is of a song called The Last Time, and it is nothing like it. I mean, nothing like it. Absolutely no link between that and the Rolling Stones song The Last Time. So the string arranger who wrote this fantastic arrangement got nothing. Um, But they rip it off. Somebody, I'm not quite sure who, but I'm guessing it's Alan Klein, launches a lawsuit to take all the royalties and takes the whole lot from Bittersweet Symphony because it comes out and they haven't declared it. Takes the whole flipping lot. But then here's the genius. is Alan Klein had stiffed the stones of their share by forming a company in the same name. And I'm not sure, but I think that that song falls under that agreement. So Alan Klein is taking all the money and giving none to the Stones, none to the String Ranger, none to the Verve. Um, And you've got this kind of incredible siphoning. And then to add insult to injury, Vox will come along and use a knockoff done in a bedroom (laughs) for their entire Astra campaign of the Bittersweet Symphony track, 
So they're not even paying, you know, recording money to the Verve. So the Verve have had this stellar success. In fact, did very, very well. You know, really huge quantities of money went all in the wrong directions. You know, now that is a kind of interesting story. But, you know, terrible miscarriages can happen. You know, but from my side of things, yes, I don't steal stuff because if I steal stuff that is obvious and attributable, I once took a set of string samples from a Curtis Mayfield record and they wanted 80%. Um, They were good, but come on, guys, be reasonable. So I don't do it anymore. I don't do it anymore because it's just not worth it. We have time probably for suddenly lots of hands. We probably only have time for maybe we'll take two last questions. I'm afraid. So the first two hands I saw was the gentleman in the middle there, and the gentleman sitting there. So number one and number two. Um, thank you all very much. That, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I guess I want to say, look, extreme cases make bad law. We all know this, right? Here's a general question. Does something like the general system work quite well to cultivate people's creativity in a way which, in a general sense, tends to track back and sustain people's creativity? And I put the question in the general because, um, actually, it's very easy to get distracted by what seem to be you know, the 1% of cases, that is, you know, people like yourself, Egg, who are very successful, or Adele, or whoever. But actually, most people aren't at that level of success. They're not the kinds of people who are going to be beset by worries about how they're distorted by the money that they're making and so on and so forth. You know, I've got friends who are jazz musicians. You know, one of them from Leeds, one of them staying with me yesterday. You know, he gets a bit of money. He, he told me yesterday he got a bit of money because some track that composed got played in Turkey. He's got no idea how or where or how it came back to him. You know, they perform at Cafe Otto. You know, God, they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't get any money from PRS because, you know, that, that has an audience of about 12. They play at festivals. They wouldn't be able to put the time in if they didn't have that. And that's actually about 90% of the people. So if it wasn't for them getting there. Okay, we've got your question. So short answers from the panel because we are running out of time. So I think... Well, nothing to add to that. I agree. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, in the general sense, we have creativity in many places in society. So we have, for instance, people doing theatre performances for school children. When I was little, I was subjected to this treatment at least five times, and I hated it because it was always very moralistic, and I felt cheated on uh, educational time. But anyway, so that guy gets paid probably from the school, and what you find in Sweden or uh, I guess many other European countries also is that the vast majority of people that do cultural services for our society, in the vast majority of cases, take a lot of uh, money from social services. Um, They go unemployed, maybe five or six or even up to eight months per year, um, and so uh, they're completely dependent on things like health services uh, working properly in society and uh, unemployment benefits and all of that kind of thing, which we're very rarely discussing. Um, so I, I think that if, if there's any type of entitlement that we could be speaking about when it comes to artists, it's actually how dependent I think particularly artists are on a generally well-functioning system in society overall. Yeah, I would just say that um, I think that it's harder than ever for a, for a young musician to be able to make a decent amount of money in the uh, music industry now, yet there are more albums being released than at any point in history. I have no idea why. <laughs> Not everything is market efficient. <laughs> okay, one last question. Um, my question is directed particularly at Luke and Egg. 
So, in regards to the non-economic analysis of copyright, do you think there's any actual value in the non-economic analysis of copyright in the sense that it protects moral rights, or each time you actually make a piece of work, you put a bit of yourself into it, and for that reason, you should be protected from people exploiting it. So, do you think there are actual values in the arguments that, don't, that are not commercially expedient? Um, th- thank you for that question. That's a very interesting one. And, and I think um, I'll need to rephrase that, actually, to, so that it will make f- full sense to Egg. So uh, under copyright, there are these things called, called moral rights. And one of those is that you, you have to be named as the author. Obviously, that's part of, of it. Um, another very interesting part is called the integrity right, which would be where you could object if somebody else used your song in a way that you thought was derogatory. So if, for example, they uh, cut and pasted it you know, and sampled it and, and put it out there, so that there's a lot of economic rights you could, you could take legal action over, but you could also claim this is actually derogatory to my integrity as an artist because other people are going to hear this and they're going to say, that's one of Egg's songs, but it sounds totally different. It sounds like it's, it's, it's uh, uh, cut up and it's, it's, it's messed up. The other type of uh, breach less likely in the UK but possible in other jurisdictions is where, for example, if your um, music is used by, let's say, Mitt Romney on his campaign or if you're a very anti-war person and your piece of music is used as a piece of propaganda for a YouTube video or something like that. So again, you're associated with something that you don't feel is um, appropriate for the actual piece of work that you've done. So copyright also, in a weaker way, protects those things. So um, the question to you would be, have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever been disappointed or offended by the use of your work by others? No, I've been amazed. Um, so I've, I've had, I've, you know, I mean, it usually comes down to lyrics, but I've had people come up and go, that song that you wrote, blah, 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 it's all about death, isn't it? I go, or whatever it is, you know, and then, I, and then I look at it and I realize that barring a couple of very small bits in the lyric, they're entirely right, or something like that. So basically, no, this is not a right that I would ever seek to maintain or regulate. I think that humans are by nature devious and perverse and extraordinary and fantastic and will make and are meant to make and do make whatever use they privately make of that song. Um, and so I would consider it no, I, you know, I mean, I know that one of the protections that I have as a songwriter is people can't take it and change certain words in it. You know, but there are some things you just can't mess with. But you really start need to asking permission nicely if you want to change a word in a song. No one has ever asked, and I would never deny permission. But I suppose I'm, I'm, my point is, no, no, I would never, never want to restrain anyone's right to make an extreme interpretation or use of a piece of music that I originated. But then I have that luxury because I'm faceless. I'm not the artist. I'm not going to abuse the chair because when I said that was the last question, I've now been informed by Bradley, who is the master of Twitter and has kept us all going, that he would like to put a question to the panel. So can you somebody give Bradley a microphone well, for a second? Um, yeah, oh, you've got, got one. Good. Yeah, I've got a question. I think you've got from <laughs> well, I think that, that uh, the way that that is happening is, as I mentioned in um, my 
uh, introductory speech is that people are paying for music and not even realizing it. So they don't realize that when they go to a music festival, they're not just paying to be at the venue to see the band, that, that a portion of that money actually does go to PRS and is then distributed back. Um, they may take a Spotify account and say, great, this is free, and again, not realize that actually this is legal, this is licensed, money is going to the songwriter. Similarly, YouTube, is, uh, is license fees are going. So, so, so I think that... Um, I'm not sure whether that, how strong that ethic ever was in, in, in people, to be perfectly honest. I think that mainly people bought music because they couldn't get it easily from other sources for free or without having to pay for it. Um, now they can, and the trick has been, and there are successful stories of having that, is how do you compete with free? Um, and, uh, you know, the, as I said, the licensing by PRS of other services such as streaming and live music is one example. It could happen in the future that packaged within your internet connection you'll be paying for content as well. So um, I think that's the, the, the way to resolve that problem is less of an ethical one and probably more of a kind of sneaky uh, economic <laughs> one. Well, uh, um, I think that, that that's right. The music is being bundled in, in, in many ways. It's being bundled with uh, mobile packages. It's being bundled with devices. It's being uh, bundled in... Uh, you know, with uh, advertising, it's being bundled in, in lots of different ways. And there are different business models where people say, no, I want to pay not to have adverts, or I want to be able to use a service that operates across all my dev devices and isn't just trapped on my phone. There are all lots of different ways that the, the, the model is evolving. So I think that as it becomes easier and more diverse, then people do pay. Uh, it, it, it's happening. We see the evidence. And as I said earlier, particularly in Sweden, where the market now is really growing very strongly. So there's been something to do with an understanding that uh, music is something that you should pay for. And I, I think we're in the beginning of a shift in public opinion. Right. Um, that, I'm afraid, is, is all the time we have to take questions. Um, you might have noticed earlier on that, that Ludo didn't get much of a chance to use his own voice. He was a very kindly um, provided a bridge for us to get inside Egg's mind. Um, so what I'm going to do is just invite Ludo to say some closing comments rather than some opening comments as everyone else did. Um, so Ludo. I'm a bit worried I've got a travesty everyone's arguments up here that I'm going to commit some sort of <laughs> copyright infringement of my own as I make merry with what's been said. But I think that uh, this evening from my, all of these very interesting um, uh, points that have been made. The, the, the theme of crisis is one which has uh, changed meaning with, with each speaker. Um, as far as I can see from uh, Robert thinking, there isn't really a crisis, that the current model is fit for purpose, even with the vastly expanded demand that now exists to Amelia, who thinks the crisis is precisely that this model is fit for purpose, i.e. that it's too strong and prohibitive. Um, and then uh, Luke portraying a picture of, of, I think, a copyright which is managing to sort of... Um, keep pace with changes with a sort of equally flexible music industry, one which has always adapted to changing technologies. Um, and then Egg, who is clearly happy with his situation. As a, <laughs> but as, as, albeit as an extremely successful songwriter, one who has adequate protection, he thinks, in law. So the crisis, it seems, is one which um, is, is, is uh, quite a fluid one. It, it doesn't exist with certain of our speakers, and uh, it, it does with others. Um, I think that the sense of the changes that have taken place in, in the music industry is such that it does seem that a copyright law that was uh, devised 
so long ago does require some sort of change, but then the question is how to change it, and music is one which um, people feel so passionately about because it is at one time the communal activity, the communal creative activity, unlike any other, really, yet it's also a very private activity. So it's one in which we all feel we have an individual, as it were, copyright, and also one which we share as a sort of, uh, as a collective, if you like. So it, it feels like a very contended area. Um, I, w- I was very interested with um, Egg's point about Alan Klein of the Rolling Stones taking all the money because, of course, the idea of the copyright protection that we've heard about is fine when it goes to Egg. I mean, you'd have to be very hard-hearted not to want Egg to profit from his endeavours, um, even if it is for 70 years after the date we will not discuss. But, I mean, if it's not Egg getting the money, if it's some corporation, if it's going to be a publishing company which has a longer deal, or if it's going to be the record company, if it's going to be some other sort of body, then do we feel so comfortable about it? And um, I feel that the talk of the way in which copyright operates in this diffuse world. I mean, the one thing we haven't really discussed so much tonight, other than with examples like Google, is the corporation and how copyright um, works with that. And what we also require are basically responsible corporations to be able to exercise their copyrights. And uh, the way, because what we don't want to have is copyright used to create a bunch of monopolists who then extract rent for a great deal of time. So, uh, yeah, it's there. (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm afraid at the risk of infringing copyright, I should say that's all, folks, for tonight. Um, It just remains to thank, in particular, thank our partners from PRS for Music for all their help in putting this on. Um, To thank, in particular, from the LSE Law Department side, Bradley Barlow, who has been... And then finally, just to thank our panellists for all their insights tonight. Thank you all very much. Thank you.